Hello, fellow movie fans. I'm Lily Percy, and I'll be your guide this week as I talk with Mark Carmode about the movie that changed his life, The Exorcist. Don't worry if you haven't seen it, because we're going to give you all the details you need to follow along. And hopefully, if you've been too scared to see it, we'll have changed your mind by the end of this conversation. Everything that I read about The Exorcist over the years, just as a movie fan, and that I heard about from people who watched the movie, everything about it was about how shocking it was, how scary it was. But no one ever told me how good it was. This is a movie that, quite frankly, is a masterpiece in movie making. And that's something that I wasn't prepared for when I watched it for the first time. Mother, what's wrong with me? It's just like the doctor said, it's nerves, and that's all, okay? You just take your pills and you'll be fine, really, okay? The Exorcist takes place in Georgetown in Washington, D.C., and it revolves around a 12-year-old girl and her demonic possession. It's terrifying because it's a child that you're watching and Satan speaking through a child, But it's also terrifying because there seems to be no way to help her. Her mother tries her best, goes to doctors, psychiatrists, and then finally turns to the Catholic Church as a last resort, to a priest named Father Karras, trying to figure out what exactly is living within her own daughter. I can't do it. I need evidence that the church would accept his signs of possession. Like what? Like her speaking in a language she's never known or studied. What else? I don't know. I'd have to look it up. I thought you were supposed to be an expert. There are no experts. You probably know as much about possession as most priests. Look, your daughter doesn't say she's a demon. She says she's the devil himself. Now, if you've seen as many psychotics as I have, you'd realize that's the same thing as saying you're Napoleon Bonaparte. You show me Reagan's double. Same face, same voice. Everything. And I'd know it wasn't Reagan. I'd know in my gut. I'm telling you that that thing upstairs isn't my daughter. Now, I want you to tell me that you know for a fact that there's nothing wrong with my daughter except in her mind. You tell me you know for a fact that an exorcism wouldn't do any good. You tell me that! My brother, who's a big movie fan as well, has been trying to get me to watch The Exorcist since I was a teenager. And the only person who could really do this for me, who could get me to sit down and watch this movie from beginning to end, is my living movie prophet, Mark Kermode. He hosts the podcast Kermode on Film and is the co-host of my favorite podcast, Kermode and Mayo's Film Review from the BBC. He's also kind of been the foremost expert on The Exorcist. He's made documentaries about The Exorcist, he's written about it, long essays and books, and he also even became friends with the director, William Friedkin, and the screenwriter, William Peter Blatty. This is a movie that Mark lives with, and for him, it's a movie that has not only changed him as a person, but has also changed the way he views movies. I'd like to just go back in time for a couple of seconds, 10 seconds, and I'll watch the clock. And I'd like you to go back in time. I'd like you to close your eyes and think about that first time that you saw The Exorcist. Think about Mm -hmm. how old you were, where you were, and how it made you feel. And I'll chime in when those 10 seconds are up.
So tell me what memories came up for you. Well, I mean, the weird thing is, this is something that I think about pretty much every day. Um, <laughs> so I was, when The Exorcist first came out, I was 10 years old. And I remember really clearly going to school on the tube train. And there were posters for the film everywhere. And the poster was that iconic image of Max von Sydow standing outside the house on Prospect Street, just in a black silhouette with, in England, the, the, the light behind the poster was yellow. In America, you had these posters with the purple tops. And yes. So I knew the image and it struck me to the core. And then our news programs were full of stories that had basically come over from America about this film that had had this extraordinary effect on audiences, that people were being carried out of screenings, that people were you know having hysteria and fainting and, and the whole country had gone on a possession jag. Mm. And the novel was Everywhere. I mean, absolutely everywhere. There's a paperback novel which had a, a white banner across it which said, see the movie, it'll be the most electrifying thing that ever happened to you. So I was, you know, seven or eight years away from being able to see the film because they were quite strict about There were some movies, some X-rated movies that nobody really cared whether you went to see them, but movies like Clockwork Orange or, or, or The Exorcist, they were very strict about. So I then had the best part of six years obsessing about a film I had never seen. <laughs> it, the idea of it terrified me, absolutely terrified me, like put the fear of God into me. I, I remember so clearly how, how scared I was by the idea of it, but I was also completely fascinated by it. And so I read the book. I read the screenplay that William Peter Blatty had, had published in his book, William Peter Blatty on The Exorcist, which had his original screenplay and then the a transcript of the finished film. I mean, I obsessed about The Exorcist. And <laughs> this is I had what you were doing instead of chasing girls. <laughs> yeah, pretty much, because what I did when I was a kid was I went to the movies. That's what I did the whole time. And it became a really big thing. So I basically had seen the film before I ever saw the film. Hmm. And then... What finally happened was I must have been, I think, 16, maybe 17, and I went to a late-night double bill to see The Exorcist. Oh, wow. And then by the time The Exorcist is about to come on, it's about midnight, and the film starts, and it starts with the Warner Brothers logo, which comes up, and there's this sound, which is actually the sound of Friedkin and, and Jack Nitsch, I think, make it, rubbing their, their fingers over a glass of wine, you know, oh, that, that yes. kind of, Ooh, like mm -hmm. that sort of the glass theremin sound. And then we begin with this sequence in Iraq, and I am in palpitations because the Iraq sequence is a brilliant scene setter, and it mm. and it and it, you know, but it goes on for a while. But I remember so clearly sitting in the cinema and looking around at other people, thinking, "Look over there, there's there's, there's like a middle-aged lady. She, she's going to be okay, so you'll be all right." And look over there, there's they don't look particularly hard. They, they look if they if they I was in fear of my life, and I remember years later when I became friends with um, Friedkin and I was making documentaries and things, and he said, he said the thing you have to understand is that after the first reaction to The Exorcist, people were scared before they got into the cinema. Mm. He said it was like walking down a street that you'd read in the paper. There was a murder there the night before. He said it was, they were scared before they got into the theatre. Well, I'd been scared for six years <laughs> before exactly. I got into the theatre. What are you doing here? My bed was shaking. I can't get to sleep. <sighs> Honey... <laughs> 
house and I see Oh, Carl. Jesus Christ, Carl, don't do that. So I have to ask, what toll does that take on you as a kid? And also, how do your parents react to watching you obsess in this way? I mean, did they say you can't see this? I mean, I believe you grew up Anglican. If I'm not mistaken, yeah. Well, I was, I was, I was brought up as a Methodist. Methodist. And then I'm, I'm, I'm Anglican now because there's, well, I'm C of E now, so um, which is Anglican. Um, there's a joke about the Church of England, which is, you don't lose your faith, you just can't remember where you left it. Um, <laughs> so my my um, my parents knew that I would that cinema was the thing that I was interested in, but they also knew that I was really really interested in, in horror. And when the horror thing began, I would sort of I'd come downstairs, uh, you know, at night and watch um, like old Hammer reruns on our black and white television with the volume turned down so that my mum and dad couldn't hear. <laughs> and they they weren't down on it in any way. Mm-hmm. So I think what they thought was, if you're interested in anything, that's a good thing. And I've always said this, you know, people, there's a great kind of vilification of horror movies. Oh, mm-hmm. they're bad for kids or they do terrible things. If you are a slightly lonely child... Um, and I wasn't unhappy lonely. I mean, I was very happy in my own company. And my, my ideal thing would be to go on my own to the cinema to watch a movie. Mm. Horror movies, they do speak to you. And I have, I've met so many people over the years, because I've spent a lot of time working in the field of horror films, who have that same thing. They either work for you or they don't. And if they don't, you can't explain it. It's like if somebody says, what do you think of opera? I go, well, to me, opera is... It's, I can appreciate it, but it, I don't get the thing. Yeah, it doesn't speak to And it's to the you. same with horror movies. Mm. The difference is no one tells you that if you listen to opera, you're going to turn into a serial killer, you know. So uh, <laughs> I, I kind of... And then we go to these like horror late-nighters where there would be a lot of individuals who you'd never really talk to each other because we were sort of slightly socially awkward people. Mm-hmm. But you'd kind of... You'd see the same faces over and over again, and you you sort of felt a kinship. If you were a bit of an outsider, horror movies were like your friends. I'm speaking to the person inside of Reagan now. If you are there, you too are hypnotized. I must answer all my questions. Come forward and answer me now. Inside of Reagan? Who are you? I love the way, and I have to say, I, I'm such a huge fan of your writing, so I will be quoting you. you back to yourself a lot. I hope you're Thank comfortable you. with it. I, I, as my wife once said, I don't fish for compliments, I troll for them. <laughs> I love that. Well, I have I have been, I confess, a person who has never really given horror um, its due. And and reading you write about it, there's this wonderful way that you say, uh, people talk endlessly about the damaging effects of horror movies, but too little is heard about the life-affirming power of being scared out of your mind and in those very rare cases out of your body. You ask me if I think there is more to this world than the grim realities of aging, disease, and death of mourning and loss, and I will refer you to that first viewing of The Exorcist, during which my imagination took flight, my soul did somersaults, and the physical world melted away into nothingness around me. I don't think that there's a spiritual element to human life. 
I know it because I have experienced it firsthand and I have horror movies to thank for that blessing. <laughs> I love that. Tell me a little thank bit you. more about that experience. What you're talking about, that aliveness, that presence that you had um, being taken away by The Exorcist. That experience, um, you know, years later, I would talk to to Bill Blatty, who wrote The Exorcist. And it, it, Bill had some sort of conflicts about what the, how the film was received, what the film meant to people. Mm. He was very concerned that because certain key sequences had been taken out of it, that it didn't, that the message of it wasn't clear. And the message from his point of view was very clear. It is, it, it will all be all right in the end. God is in his heaven. There are angels mm. because there are demons. You know, if there are demons, then there are angels. Then he was very, very clear about it. And Bill was a very religious man. And that was what the story was about for him. Um, but he he said, uh, we were talking quite candidly at one point, and he said, the thing is, when you watch that film, you are alive. You know, you're having an experience. And whether that experience is good or bad, you are alive and you are aware of it. And what it means is that there is there is a thing that horror movies can do and to some extent, this goes into, you know, roller coasters, all that sort of stuff. It makes you alive by confronting you with the spectacle of something else. Mm. But it's more than just, oh, you're, you're experiencing something dangerous in a safe environment. It is, in the genuine sense of the word, transcendent. Now, from my point of view, that kind of almost out-of-body experience that I had watching The Exorcist was wholly positive wholly positive because it was a form of transcendence mm. and there are moments when cinema does that to you and it doesn't matter whether it's a horror movie or whether it's a love story or whether it's a thriller or a science fiction it's something that makes you think there is more to this world than this chair that I'm sitting in mm. and this auditorium that I'm sitting in and the other thing that I think is really important, I mean, the, you know, one of the purposes of this discussion is the movie that, that, that changed me, that taught me something. And one of the things that, that The Exorcist taught me was people take away from that experience what they bring to it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Friedkin has always said this. He said, when I saw the film, I saw God. Other people saw it and they saw the devil. I've seen that film a million times and every time I take different things away from it. But what I think is important is that for me, I brought so much to it. I brought so much, six years of, of stuff I brought to that screening and the film literally like a prism shone it back at me and, and it didn't drop a beat. And, and I, you know, that's why I think it's such an impressive mm. film because it, you know, for somebody to go to a movie with such baggage and for the film to go, Doom, there it goes, you know, and, it works like a spell mm. because it's a it's there's something about it the, the way it's like a piece of music you can't really explain why a brilliant piece of music you can say oh, well there's this contrapuntally does that yes you but can analyze the end, and is, critique yeah yeah but it won't get you to the ultimate answer which is why why does that film work mm. years later i went to georgetown you know and i walked up those steps and i walked to the front of where the house you know, should be. Obviously, it's different in real life. Mm -hmm. And again, it was that incredible feeling of I'm walking into something that I've already been into. And that deja vu, that is an uncanny experience. And uncanny experiences tell you that there's more to life than just this. Hello, Reagan. 
I'm a friend of your mother's. I'd like to help you. You want to loosen the straps, huh? I'm afraid you might hurt yourself, Reagan. I'm not Reagan. I see. Well, then, let's introduce ourselves. I'm Damien Karras. And I'm the devil. Now kindly undo these straps. If you're the devil, why not make the straps disappear? That's much too vulgar a display of power, Karras. Where's Reagan? In here with us. Your mother's in here with us, Karras. Would you like to leave a message? I see that she gets it. If you're enjoying my conversation with Mark Kermode, consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps people discover This Movie Changed Me. And we also just love hearing what you think. As always, thank you for helping us build our movie-loving empire. that you brought up that quote from um, from William Friedkin, the, the director of The Exorcist, about you know that The Exorcist is a film that gives you what you bring to it. Um, because I grew up in an evangelical household. My, my parents were Catholic in yeah. Colombia and Latin America, and they converted in their college years um, to a Protestant denomination. And when this movie uh, was re-released in the theaters when I was in high school, I'm 37, and it was released in, in 2000 again. Um, I remember they talked about how I could never see this movie because people yeah. had gone mad, and mm-hmm. they put so much fear into me about this movie that I just was terrified. I, I, yeah. I have such pain for you, those six years that you spent <laughs> like thinking about this. But what I love about what you're saying is that when I finally saw it, which, by the way, was the first time this week because of you, I finally saw it. Oh, wow, I'm so it. sorry. <laughs> no, I'm so grateful to you uh, for two reasons. First of all, it's an amazing movie. Yeah, no it one, really is. No one ever told me that. No one told me that. In addition to terrifying you, it was also going to be this work of art. I, I had yeah. no idea. Yeah. And the second thing is that watching it, I felt like my faith was strong enough to sustain me through the experience. It yeah. was holding up this mirror to me uh, in that beautiful way, as you said, that I was bringing to it what what I wanted to. And it gave me this sense of I am going to be okay because if there are devils and there are angels and human beings are complex and we get through it. Yeah. And I think the, the, I mean, the interesting thing is that from a theological point of view, the story is, you know, immensely encouraging. I mean, as you, as you know, Mm -hmm. um, if you go into it with a Catholic perspective, it is, you know, it's pretty straight down the line that the forces of good triumph over the forces of evil. Karras commits the ultimate sacrifice Mm -hmm. and, you know, and he is redeemed and saved as is the young girl. And so that's the story. If you don't believe in the theology of it, the film works on an, on an equal level, mm. just as a film about something that is... Ha- because the whole point of the film is it's not her. There's yes. so much of that film yes. is looking at other characters. It looks at Ellen Burstyn yes. as she recoils in terror. It looks at the doctors as they are baffled and amazed. It looks at Father Karras as he hears the demon taunting him. There's almost m- more concentration on all the characters reacting to what's happening than what's happening. 
And that's kind of the key to it. I mean, that's why Exorcist 2 is the stupidest film ever made. Because <laughs> in Exorcist 2, it's, oh, no, it is all about her. Exactly. No, it is. Yeah. That's, that's what it is so about. So let's it's just about forget her. everything we've established. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just throw all that out the window. Yeah. That's all nonsense. Well, you know? and so, I, yeah, I love that you've brought up the way that the characters are portrayed. I was so impressed with how Chris, uh, the mother played by Ellen Burstyn, um, you know, she you believe how terrified she is about yeah. her daughter because the movie takes all that time, that slow burn you talked about in setting up her life, her mm. intimate relationship with her daughter. You, you just really understand and know this woman. And so when this happens, when you see her daughter become possessed, you just feel so much for her. One of the, the most important sequences in the film is a very, very incidental sequence when um Chris is putting Reagan to bed and mm. Reagan's got a, a cover of the magazine. It's a magazine image of her and her daughter on the front of it. Reagan, why are you reading that stuff? Because I like that. It's not even a good picture of you. Look at that. It looks so mature. And um, they have a little incidental conversation. She says, oh, I don't like that cover. You look so mature. Let me take an eyelash off your face. Okay. No, I didn't get it. Mm. What are we going to do on your birthday? Isn't it nice it's on Sunday this year? Mm, and it's like a couple of minutes long. But it, you absolutely believe that they are mother and daughter and that they have history, that they have past, yes. that they have shared, you know, quips and foibles. We have a good day, yeah? You can bring Mr. Dennings if you like. Mr. Dennings? Well, you know, it's okay. It also well, sets up... I mean, one of the brilliant things about the film is... Everything in it is prefigured by something else. Yes. So that moment when she looks at the magazine, she says, oh, you look so mature. There is something in the film about, you know, you're not my little girl anymore. And Reagan is the little girl played by Linda Reagan Blair. Reagan is the little girl yeah. played by Linda Blair, brilliantly played by yes. Linda Blair. Brilliantly played by Linda Blair. Well, I had who to I think, Google, oh, is she okay after seeing this yeah, movie? Yeah, she's great. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, but, and and I, you know, I have met Linda Blair. Are you a, a sounder, nicer, more down to earth, solid person? You would <laughs> just a top, all round top person, and a really hardworking mm. actress and brilliant in that film. But it's those incidental details that mean that when stuff starts kicking off, you feel that horror. When Chris is talking to the doctors. And they're saying, well, you know, maybe it's a thing. She says, you know, 99 doctors and all you can tell me with all this. I mean, did you see what she was doing? Yes. She's acting like she's. A... And then when she says, you show me Reagan's double, same everything down to the way she dots her eyes. And I know, I know in an instant that it's not. My... I'm telling you that that thing is not mm -hmm. my daughter. And that works because half an hour, 45 minutes before you were seeing her and Reagan behaving exactly like a mother and daughter. Yes. So all the way through the film, it's all the scenes that seem incidental are really doing the heavy lifting mm. so that when the the other stuff happens, the stuff that everyone talks about, it works because of everything that's gone before. It's just genius. Well, it's a symptom of a type of disturbance in the chemical electrical activity of the brain case of your daughter in the temporal lobe. It's up here in the lateral part of the brain. Mm -hmm. It's rare, but it does cause bizarre hallucinations, and usually just before a convulsion. A convulsion? The shaking of the bed. That's doubtless due to muscular spasms. Oh, no, 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 that was no spasm. Look, I got on the bed. The whole bed was thumping and rising off the floor and shaking the whole thing with me on it. 
Mrs. McNeil, the problem with your daughter is not her bed. It's her brain. As a person of faith, I really appreciated that they started, the doctors and the medical scenes were included because it goes to this idea of how you can't prove faith, right? You can't prove any yeah. of, of what's happening to her. And she has to go to a priest for help. She tried yeah. every logical thing she could, and it didn't work. And that, to me, almost feels like often when I have um, conversations with atheists, I'm like, I get it. None of this is logical. <laughs> yeah. And, of course, the great irony of the film is that Chris, who is nominally an atheist, goes to the priest and she is trying to convince the priest that her daughter's possessed and the priest doesn't believe her. So it's like the role's reversal is brilliant. The Catholic priest doesn't believe that yes. the kid is possessed and the atheist mother does. Yes. And it's one of the one of the great ironies at the centre of the film is that it's it, you don't even notice it's happened. That, you know, she, she, she who doesn't believe in any of this stuff is saying, I think my daughter's possessed. And he who does believe in all this stuff is saying, well, you're going to have to get in a time machine and take you back to the, you know, the, the dark ages because we don't do <laughs> yes. this anymore. Yes. And this is why, you know, from what I've read when that film came out, the Catholic Church actually thought it was a great ad for them. <laughs> Well, I know for a fact that there was, you know, there was a huge number of people who came straight out of the cinemas from seeing and went straight into a church. And <laughs> the reasons it, probably varied. <laughs> yeah, but you know, again, I would I would talk to Bill Blatty about this. Mm. I mean, I you know I miss Bill terribly. He was he was a brilliant. He was a, you know such a funny man. He was a comedy screenwriter and and he had happened to, to write The Exorcist. But he was the kind of person that if you wanted to engage him in a theological discussion, it was great because he enjoyed nothing more than that. Mm. And um, and he you know his feeling about it was that what the film did was it kind of it at least got people thinking about theology in a in, in a secular age. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's true, you know, think, find me another film outside of a Hammer or a Dracula or something like that in which the hero, well, the two heroes are priests. Yeah. Especially important is the warning to avoid conversations with it, even. We may ask what is relevant, but anything beyond that is dangerous. He's a liar. The demon is a liar. He will like to confuse us. But he will also mix lies with the truth to attack us. The attack is psychological, Damien. And powerful. So don't listen. Remember that. Do not listen. I think it might be helpful if I gave you some background on the different personalities Reagan has manifested. So far, I'd say there seem to be three. She's convinced that there she's... There's only one. So I'm so curious... There's so many layers to this movie, clearly, right? I mean, yes. there's the layers that you find in the in the sense of how it was made and the true just masterpiece element of the filmmaking, which you as a film critic can find and, and a film scholar. But I'm so curious as to what it continues to give you and what you continue to bring to it. I mean, you say yourself you've seen it hundreds of times and you keep going back to it. Does it give you a new perspective on your faith? Does it give you a new perspective on being a parent? I mean, what things do you bring to it now that you didn't when you first saw it as a kid? It's it's so hard to say. I mean, I think that every time I see it, I'm reminded of the first time I saw it. It mm. is, for me, a kind of primal experience. I think it's interesting that... Um, you know, I I write about horror movies quite a lot, and um, and then people used to, I used to get this thing. People used to go, 
no, you got a, you got a church. And I go, yeah, yeah. And they went, well, how, you know, what's the, th- how can you be into horror movies and go to church? And I was like, how long have you got? It's like, you know, seriously? Um, the most violent film I've ever seen in my life is The Passion oh of the God, Christ. Yeah. I have literally never seen a more violent film than that. Agreed. And here's the thing. You don't obsess about The Exorcist as long as I have without being fundamentally interested in questions of faith, okay? And um, when I was younger, I used to do a lot of, you know, angsting about trying to figure everything out and, you know, but, but how, you know, how and why and blah, 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 blah. And as you get older, well, as I get older, what I think is this. Most of my life, I've I've gone to church and I've always, it's always worked for me. Um, I don't presume for one minute to understand the mysteries of, of the cosmos. And I'm no longer wrestling with any of that stuff because, you know, I think that there is more to the world than this. And beyond that, I think that, you know, you should try and be decent and honest and, and, and fundamentally not spend your life screwing people over. Mm. Whatever anybody else believes is absolutely up to them. I don't think it's important to know or not to know. I don't need or want proof of things. But a film like that that has that kind of effect just reminds me that there's magic in the world. I mean, magic, you know, proper magic. Yeah, it's what makes um, going to the movies a church in itself, right? I mean, I, I agree with yep. you. I know you've written about that as well. And, yeah, and yeah. for me, I didn't grow up going to a church building ever. And we met in the house that my parents lived in. But going to the movie theaters for me is a church. That's the church experience yeah. for me. And it is because you're amongst other people. You're alone together. And when you can experience the transcendence that something like The Exorcist gave you and that I I experienced this week when I watched it, oh, it's so magic. Glad. That's great. It is magic. <laughs> it is. It is. It's, uh, it's never let me down. It's never let me down after all these years. What an excellent day for an exorcism. You'd like that? Intensely. But wouldn't that drive you out of Reagan? It would bring us together. You and Reagan. You and us. Mark Kermode is a presenter, writer, musician, and my favorite living movie prophet. I can't recommend Mark's work enough. I first discovered him through the wonderful BBC radio show and podcast, Kermode and Mayo's Film Review, and he now also hosts his very own podcast, Kermode on Film. Mark's work in the Church of Wittertainment sustains me, so I say a very Minnesotan hello to Jason Isaacs. When you're afraid, close your eyes and count to five. The Exorcist was produced by Hoya Productions and distributed by Warner Brothers. The clips you heard in this episode are credited entirely to them. The soundtrack was released by Warner Brothers Records and should be classified as a music genre we're calling hella creepy. Next time on This Movie Changed Me, we'll be talking about the beautiful Pixar movie Coco. You can find it streaming in all the usual places, including Netflix. Prepare to have the soundtrack stuck in your head for weeks. The team behind This Movie Changed Me is Maya Tarrell, Chris Hegel, Tony Liu, Kristen Lin, and Lillian Vo. This podcast is produced by On Being Studios, which is located on Dakota land. 
We also produce other podcasts you might enjoy, like On Being with Krista Tippett and Becoming Wise. Find those wherever you like to listen or visit us at onbeing.org to find out more. I'm Lily Percy, and I promise you, if you watch The Exorcist, you will be okay. This podcast is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota.